It's not too difficult to discover groups who are just beginning long and shiny careers, but how about discovering a group that is a total failure? An accomplishment indeed. Also, where can I get a bunk bed for my two English Springer Spaniels? Dance, goddammit, it's all you ever think about is Sparks. Thanks for clicking play. This is All You Ever Think About is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast about the band Sparks on the internet. I'm your host, Christian Huey. And the next couple of episodes, we'll be following Ron, Russell, and the boys and Half Nelson on their journey to being a signed rock band and ultimately finding enlightenment and thenceforth earning the new name Sparks. This episode has two parts. Part the first, I relay more of the Sparks saga to you, dear listener, myself. And in part two, I'm proud to present what will hopefully be the first of many interviews with Monty Mallon, host of his own podcast, So Important, as well as the author of the Sparks Drummer Project. Today, he's going to be talking mostly about Harley Feinstein with us, who was Sparks Drummer for their uh, first two officially released albums for Bearsville Records. Most of the words that you heard me say at the cold open were written by Los Angeles-based journalist Kathy Orloff. And I'm going to get into the doggy beds. Uh, that article contained the first and only interview Half Nelson had given for publication in 1970. Despite the inauspicious lead paragraph, Orloff goes on to proclaim herself a fan of the band and her October 17th article for UK music zine Sounds. Um, somewhat inelegantly, but still well-intentioned, she even declares Half Nelson to be, quote, underground favorites of the recording company underground. As measured as the article was in its support, it was a feather in Half Nelson's cap, and they would immediately add the article to their press package, with the copy proudly taped to the wall next to their myriad rejection letters in their home away from home, the North Hollywood Doggy Bunk Bed Factory. Yes, you can take the boys out of the joke shop, but you cannot keep the joke shop out of the lives of the male brothers. Their rehearsal space at that time was indeed a working factory that manufactured beds for pooches um, in an act of uncommon magnanimity. Uh, one of their bass players, short-lived, known only as Neil, whom Ron and Russell hired and quickly fired, uh, allowed the boys to use his father's workplace as a rehearsal space uh, when parts of it were not in use. The Doggy Factory would serve as Half Nelson's de facto headquarters in between gigs at delicatessens and high schools and even one highly improbable Mormon dance event. It was where they performed for the record execs who were curious enough to take the time to come and see what this quirky act was all about. Most prominently, it was the space where weirdo rock wonderkind Todd Rungren, that's all hard to say, decided to stake his reputation as well as the dollars of the record company that employed him on Half Nelson. The band at that time was comprised of two sets of brothers and drummer Harley Feinstein. Russell had long since, of course, decided definitively that he would hand over bass guitar duties to a hired hand, and that was Earl's exceptionally talented younger brother, Jim. He was so talented, in fact, he was by all accounts a more accomplished guitarist than Earl, but Earl leveraged his older brother's status by forcing Jim to play a different instrument. Rundgren agreed to an invitation by Mike Burns to attend a musical showcase at the Doggy Factory, where Half Nelson would perform to an audience of four. To their embarrassment and dismay, Half Nelson had to reschedule at the last minute the first planned showcase for Rundgren and company due to Feinstein's broken arm. But the rescheduled performance went without a hitch. Rungren brought along engineer and later Sparks producer James Thaddeus Lowe, as well as Rungren's girlfriend Christine and Lowe's wife Pamela. 
It is unknown whether it was Rundgren himself or Miss Christine of the Zappa-affiliated all-girl band, the GTOs, and yes, the Miss was part of her handle, who was the most convinced of Half Nelson's potential. But one thing that soon became known was that Miss Christine and Russell Mayle were having a dalliance of their own at the time. Indeed, as time went on, Miss Christine ended up favoring Russell's charms over Todd's, although thankfully this didn't seem to keep a record from getting made. Love triangles aside, Bearsville Records via Rungren and Lowe were intrigued by Half Nelson's demo record and they wanted to see what the band could do live. Lowe and his wife were already fans of the song Roger, which they considered the highlight of the demo record uh, Bearsville received from Half Nelson. Lowe was especially keen to hear newer material that might be of a piece with it. He was not disappointed by either the quirkiness of the new songs nor the band's showmanship in that private concert. These are some of Lowe's own words at the time. They were a bit nervous at first, but when they went into the set, they just hit it. There's no way to play Half Nelson music tentatively. You are committed as soon as the first falsetto note comes out of the singer's mouth. This was like a trip to another world. My God, it was all as weird as Roger. And it wasn't just about the music. Half Nelson put on a full theatrical experience. They adorned spacey costumes. Uh, Russell sang a ballad, Slow Boat, on a giant paper mache boat on wheels. They even added pre-recorded audience noises, cheering them on, and they had a fake concession stand. Also, the endless rehearsals had definitely paid off. The private concert was a smash. The only thing left to do was to convince the label's head, Albert Grossman, of Half Nelson's commercial viability. Luckily for the band, Grossman had trusted Rundgren's instincts implicitly. Grossman himself was a fairly big dog in the music industry, having managed Bob Dylan and having recently signed Foghat, who, although they weren't huge yet, they of course would go on to score a massive hit for the label with Slow Ride in 1975. Grossman never knew exactly what to make of Half Nelson, but he did eventually relay to the boys rather pointedly what he thought stood in the way of them and international success. It was the name. It was too... Wrestly. Not catchy enough. Never mind Russell's insistence that Half Nelson was a reference to an exotic Japanese sex act. Not true. To Grossman, the chief draw of the band was their humor. Or so he told them after a few dinners in upstate New York at a nice Szechuan place. After the first Half Nelson record failed to catch fire, he urged them to change their name to something that would channel their wacky side. Grossman seemed to be a fan of the Marx Brothers, and he saw some similarities. So, in a classic example of the raw uncreativity of clueless industry execs, Grossman offered up the moniker Sparks Brothers. Although the band, of course, thought it was too cute by half, they acquiesced, and by the time of the re-release of the album a year later, they were initially advertised as the Sparks Brothers, soon shortened to Sparks as a compromise. Grossman and Rungren agreed well, when they signed Half Nelson in late 1970 that what they needed was a brand new album to put out, something with professional polish, which the band was happy to do. What they were less happy about was Grossman's insistence that they dump their friend and manager Mike Burns for old-school, cigar-chomping Hollywood heavyweight Roy Silver. Silver was an intimidating presence, but he did start landing real gigs for the band, Hef Nelson also became increasingly annoyed with their recording sessions with Rundgren. The sessions seemed to stretch on forever, as Ron later related. Sure, Rundgren had similar musical interests, but the band felt he was pushing too many of his own ideas onto the proceedings. It was a case of too many cooks. By accounts, Rundgren was nice enough and plenty professional, but he was also riding a wave of critical adulation for his 1970 album Runt and he felt the need to put his imprimatur on everything he produced. Ron, for his part, would later cop to pushing back on Rungren a bit too aggressively, which discouraged their producer from showing up a whole lot in the later sessions. James Lowe, who picked up the slack when Rungren wasn't around, later offered the narrative that Rungren simply found himself spinning too many plates at once and just didn't have the time or the energy to devote to Half Nelson once the ball really got rolling in the studio. At any rate... 
Lowe was as impressed, if not more so, with Half Nelson's off-kilter sound and subject matter and showed himself to be a skilled hand at the decks and a nice guy to boot. Half Nelson was finally released on Bearsville with 12 songs on the record. Just two tracks from the 1969 demo album made the transition, but uh, a much stronger and confident, still plenty weird set of songs took their place. Let's take a closer look at the songs of Half Nelson, shall we? A nine-note guitar riff sounding like the waddle of a lost duck is the opening salvo of Half Nelson's first official album. At least I think it's a guitar. Wonder Girl is so un-rock and roll, uh, so pedestrian on an, and stayed even on its surface, it takes a couple of listens to realize how ballsy a choice it is for the lead single on an unknown band's debut album. Wonder Girl sounds like the way Ron Mayo looked on stage in 1971. Like there's an inner voice instructing its subject to keep it together, dude, at least for the next three minutes. The unofficial, by now, video for the song, a live quote-unquote performance on German television from 1972, shows the band pantomiming to the music, as was the style at the time, while a herd of white Euroteens, who seemingly are given instructions to dance and then freeze at appropriate moments in the song. The term dance here is used loosely, but to be fair, Wonder Girl was never designed to be a disco hit. In the video, we see a rough draft version of Ron and Russell's trademark visual presentation with some early differences. Wearing a conservative suit and tie, Russell mugs, eyes forever agog, with curly locks cascading over his shoulders. Ron, pre-haircut, looks like Russell's evil twin, with goth eyeliner to boot, but with his mainstay toothbrush mustache present in all its whimsical slash unsettling glory. And while Russell is bug-eyed in a welcoming sort of excitement, Ron sneers and glares at the camera each chance he gets. And thus, the good twin-evil twin dynamic was minted, and they would keep these basic onstage personae to this very day. Wonder Girl is a severely disciplined tune, and in retrospect, you can hear the seeds of New Wave planted here, but it frankly must have been kind of a shock to hear in a year when maximalist rock bands like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath were marrying blues with Wagner, for young people to hear music that sounded like, I don't know, B.J. Thomas having a psychotic episode coming out of their car's new stereo speakers. The arrangement on this song is miles away from the Sid Barrett psychedelia of their abandoned demo album, and one has to wonder if the single's brutal minimalism was calculated for maximum impact. Each member of the band is given the barest minimum of instructions here. There are no solos, no drum fills, and even Russ's falsetto is remarkably restrained. The song works amazingly well as a pop tune, no doubt because of its clear-eyed straightforwardness, at least musically so, and it has a French cabaret vibe to it that would pop up countless times in Sparks' catalog. It's an appetizer, but also a palate cleanser for the rest of the album that proceeds. Lyrically, Wonder Girl is one of Ron's early explorations of frustrated adolescent lust. There's not a whole lot of the lyrical playfulness, or at least that sense of, oh, I see what he did there, that Ron's best lyrics trigger, but there's plenty to like about understated lines like, she was there, and I was pretty glad about that too, knowing that she knew a thing or two. Ned Raggett of All Music Guide wrote decades later about the song, Arguably, the rest of the brothers' career has been a continual refinement from Wonder Girl's basic formula. Track two is Fala Fali. It's another Ron song. I really like this song's driving rhythm. It sounds like an early use of the Motorique beat, courtesy, of course, Harley Feinstein, the drummer. Uh, this beat would go on to form the bedrock of the Krautrock phenomenon with the likes of Noi and Can, uh, Kraftwerk, um, the band is given more to do on this song for sure than it is on the opening track, Wonder Girl, with plenty of playful keyboard work from Ron. Um, so check out the, you know, the charge song, if you will, near the end, and some great fretwork from bass player Jim Minkey. The lyrics? 
Well, they seem to tell a story about brother or sister incest. Oh, Ron, you cad. Moving on. Uh, track three is Roger. This is one of only two holdovers from the Half Nelson demo album. Uh, Roger looked for a couple of years there to be the band's likeliest shot at scoring a hit single, despite how weird, or maybe because of how weird it sounded. It's a rare Russell-penned song, and it's not crystal clear to me what the lyrics are about, but one reading could be that it's that of a wealthy man asking his accountant, say the titular Roger, how best to divvy up his riches and his will. Anyway, Roger was an early favorite of the band's, as well as Todd Rundgren and his production team, and here is where uh, we can hear the band Sid Barrett's obsession from a few years ago find its full flower. There are time signature changes aplenty, call and response, melodic lines, and some downright wacky sound effects and some sonic treatments courtesy uh, Earl Mankey. Then we have High C. Here's where fans of Sparks' glam era can really hear those humble beginnings. High C is a driving piano-based rock number in a minor key with um, a lot of 16th notes. But in keeping with the band's musical habits at the time, the song veers without warning into a playful doo-wop vocal interlude and several key changes and time changes throughout. The song showcases some of Ron's more enjoyable lyrics of the period. Um, example, since you left the opera, you just frown a lot and mumble, I'm humble. As the narrator serenades a retired opera singer of whom he's an obvious fan. Then we have fan favorite Fletcher Honorama, another fan favorite. Ron's pulsing organ starts out Fletcher Honorama, and Harley Feinstein matches with an alternating clack and somber cymbal hit, methodically building on this rhythmic structure throughout the song. This is a moody minor key number. It sounds like a dirge um, or a requiem. It sort of is a pre-requiem for a guy named Fletcher who has decided to hold a televised wake before his death. There is the line, telecast in 50 states and brought to you by anti-wrinkle dew. Russell croons on this one as the narrator acts as a master of ceremonies in the celebration of the life of the well-known 80-year-old Fletcher. Russell's narrator reads briefly from his will, which mentions Fletcher's living twin, and takes time in the middle of the show to play some of Fletcher's favorite songs. At this point in the song, the band takes us into sort of a dream sequence, and Ron's piano channels like an old Tin Pan Alley or music hall ditty that never was, sounding a lot like a lost Scott Joplin number. When the band takes us to the present, when the band takes us back to the present, they build to a crescendo with Russell's TV presenter character admonishing everyone involved in the production to be sure that the boy don't die by morn, which he repeats ad infinitum. The last song on side one is Simple Ballet. Simple Ballet sounds as advertised. It's a bracing waltz number with heavy emphasis on Ron's piano, punctuated by Feinstein's occasional cymbal crashes. About halfway through the song, a small choir of mini Russells show up to back Russell's own lilting falsetto. Now Ron's lyrics here are starting to show their brand. There's a simple what-if supposition that leads to verses and a chorus of then this and then that and finally something entirely foreseen, which is really enjoyable. In simple ballet, the idea is that ballet is the next big fad to hit the masses. Um, although the character being sung to somehow gets himself into legal trouble near the end, it's not clear to me why. And that is the end of side one. Side two begins with um, a really unusual song for the band. Now side two starts out with a, an unusual song for the band. Slow Boat is easily the most normal song in the Half Nelson canon, if not the Sparks canon. It has a simple lyric about a love lost, simple imagery about the titular slow boat sailing the narrator away from the object of his wasted affections. This was the time of ballad AM radio, and it was a wash in songs similar to this in sound and theme in 1971. Um, think about Let It Be or Bridge Over Troubled Water. 
Now, despite some embarrassment by the band about how straight, maybe even mawkish, the song sounded, Russell believed the song could have been a hit were it not for their record company's indifference. Also, whether an ironic gesture or completely sincere, Russell would perform Slow Boat live wearing a sailor suit and from a papier-mâché boat on wheels pulled to the stage by stagehands. And then we have Biology 2. If the inclusion of the mainstream-sounding slow boat embarrassed the band, then they more than make up for it with the follow-up track Biology 2, which is an, a rare non-male song contributed by Earl Mankey. Mankey really lets his musical influences take the spotlight here. His lead vocals, though it is Mankey who is singing lead, are pitched up at least an octave, sounding like a Randy Chipmunk as he grunts and croons about sex via its connection to meiosis and gene selection. And musically, we have halting, mostly arpeggiated lines uh, that alternate on guitar and then keyboard, and that sort of frames this intentionally bonkers song that very well could have been an inspiration for the later novelty hit Fish Heads by Barnes & Barnes. It was the last Mankey would get to channel his inner Frank Zappa, unfortunately, at least as a member of Sparks slash Half Nelson. It was also, weirdly enough, the first Half Nelson song to receive any airplay on local radio in Los Angeles, much to Russell's chagrin. Then we have the only other holdover from the Half Nelson demo album, Saccharin and the War, and one of just two and a half songs written by Russell. Now, the uh, version here loses some character in the Rundgren version from the original demo version, but it does rock harder after the first verse. As Russell described in an interview, the song is about the religious fervor encouraged in women by society to lose weight. And this was in 1971. Descriptions of a cross and a crucified doctor, which raises the question, did this doctor suffer for their perceived sins of being fat. It all brings home Russell's point in a pretty provocative fashion. Next we have Big Bands. This is another song that reached back generations for its musical inspiration. This is another mini epic that pulls together at least five disparate musical sections. The song references Herbert Hoover again and again and again. Um, it, bizarrely, fascinatingly, it features a middle eight proto-rap by Russell about three and a half minutes in um, and generally the song sets things up for the big rock number trademark that closes out the album which is no more Mr. Nice Guys. Now I know what you're probably thinking and although he hasn't said so himself publicly this is possibly where Alice Cooper got the idea for his 1975 hit. No More Mr. Nice Guys is that big rock number that points the way forward for Sparks' glam day soon to come, mining Ron's seemingly endless well of sexual frustration and the condemnation of what we now call toxic masculinity, very common theme with uh, Ron's lyrics. Nice Guys finishes out the album with a bang and finally gives Earl Mankey a chance to really shred on his guitar. There was originally meant to be a 13th song, which was left off for unknown or unspoken reasons. That would have been Jim Mankey's only solo credit uh, plaintive song called I'm an Old Retired Man. Now, I myself have not heard the song, so if anyone listening has ever come across this, come across a recording of it, let me know. Um... Maybe the others in the band thought uh, that this song was too similar in theme to Fletcher Honorama and it got the axe. Don't know. The album would have two releases under two different names. They also had two different covers. The original Half Nelson album cover was a work of some pretty innovative pre-photoshopping skills on the part of Larry DuPont based on an idea by Ron. Uh, now he took a magazine ad by GM for their 1969 Oldsmobile that shows a glamorous woman reclining in the back seat. And then he superimposed the head of each band member onto the car windows, which kind of gives the impression of these five long-haired ruffians leering at this poor, unsuspecting lady. 
Uh, the original uh, composition was in black and white, and DuPont artificially tinted parts of the image, which, to my eyes, does add some uh, playfulness. Uh, by the way, the ad photo I, I did read was used with GM's permission. They did seek GM's permission and received it. Um, for the re-release, the 1972 re-release of the album under the Sparks name, um, there was another band photo, a simpler photo, again in black and white, that graces the foreground with a red brick wall as a backdrop. Um, apparently, Ron was nursing a fascination with brickwork at the time. Having the backing of an actual record label paid huge dividends by the time the band was rechristened as Sparks in 1972, Bearsville decided to release Wonder Girl as a single in July. Remarkably and esoterically, the song caught on big in Montgomery County, Alabama, and uh, fought for the top of the charts alongside Gary Glitter's um, now legendary as football chant, Rock and Roll. Soon, the same thing happened in Fargo, North Dakota, and Sparks found themselves playing their first gigs out of state. They even scored their first appearance on American Bandstand, where Mr. Normie himself, Dick Clark, would welcome Ron and Russell back again and again over the years. Before heading back into the studio to record album number two, Sparks had a disastrous experience surrounding a show in Houston. Their rental car broke down in the Mojave Desert, leaving the band stranded until a truck of Mexican tourists saved the day. Later, there was a torrential downpour that made the Texas highways impassable. And finally, although they did manage to play the show in Houston, uh, Russell suffered a concussion on stage with a wooden mallet that appears to be a mishap, which was entirely his own fault. Still, if 1971 was a good year for Half Nelson, 1972 was an amazing year for Sparks. They finally felt like they were on their way to realizing their old manager and friend's three-year-old prediction, this group is going to make it. I'm tired of being called a lunatic. Hello. This is Computer Girl, from the song Computer Girl. Wow. Ron and Russell's story just keeps getting more and more interesting. Of course, all your bizarre human habits are interesting to me. You know what else is interesting? Checking out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcastsparks, or emailing the show at podcastsparks at gmail.com. Coming up, Christian's interview with Monty Malin. Don't forget to listen to Monty's podcast, so important, and read his blog at montysnewblog.blogspot.com. That's Monty spelt M-O-N-T-E. Finally, you may notice the audio is a bit hot. Humans are so fallible. Okay. Yep, we are good here. Okay. All right. So I have here Mr. Monty Mallon. Um, and I, am, of course, am, am Christian. It's good to talk to you uh, voice-wise for the first time. It's great to talk to you. I've been enjoying communicating on Facebook with you. Yeah, I have too. Yeah, and it's, of course, it's quite an endeavor that <laughs> I've decided to start here. Um, but I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the project that you're involved with over here that is uh, Sparks-related. Uh, now, you uh, first of all, just go ahead and feel free to introduce yourself to the listening audience, Monty. Okay, my name is Monty Mallon. I've been a Sparks fan since about 1974. Like a lot of other people, I saw him on Don Kirshner's rock concert and a couple of the other late night shows way back in the day, and I just knew that was the best thing I had ever seen. And I'm loyal to a lot of bands, but nothing's happened that's changed my opinion on that. <laughs> I mean, you know, you see them and it's like, okay, this is different. This is different. And either you're repulsed or you just say, I got to know more about them. And I was in the latter camp. Um, and I'm a drummer. So I have been, I've spent a lot of time uh, listening to Sparks in terms of the totality of the music, but also from a drumming perspective. And I just found so many interesting qualities in the drumming of the, the various, uh, I found so many interesting qualities 
of the styles of the many men who and women who drummed with Sparks that I, I became fascinated with it, and I, I love listening to the creativity there. Well, okay, so that interests me a lot, and, you know, and of course you went on and you've uh, started your Sparks Drummers project, um, and I'm not a drummer. I'm, I'm barely a musician myself, so I, I would love to pick your brain and find out what it is specifically about these men and women uh, who you think have contributed so much to the Spark sound, number one, but also be interesting musicians in their own right. And as our listeners are hearing this episode here, I'm going in chronological order, and so by now I'm going to be delving into the first uh, two um, Bearsville records. So, of course, we would be focusing on Harley Feinstein, or is it Feinstein? I'm not sure. Is it Feinstein or I, Feinstein? I will go with Feinstein. Um, You've spoke to the man, haven't you? I've spoke to him, and I even got to visit him once. And uh, he had two drum sets up, and I got to jam with him for a little oh, bit, which is amazing. It is a bucket list item. Oh, <laughs> it is gosh. an ab- absolute bucket list item. So what? Um, so first of all, what was it that that turned you on to to, to Harley's drumming? Because it, it clearly made made an, an effect on you. It had an effect on you. Well, let me step back just a little bit. Um, in 2014, I started the project. I'm a guy who likes communication and social media. I've written a lot of things over the years, articles. I even wrote a book. Um, and I used to write for the school newspaper back in the day. And uh, I'd had a blog for a number of years where I touched on all kinds of things. And now I have my own podcast. So I just enjoy this this medium quite a bit. And in I think it was about 2014, 2015, I decided I would just, why not try to interview every single one of Sparks' drummers? And believe it or not, they were willing to talk to me. Uh, there were one or two who didn't, um, you know, and and I still regret that, but that's okay. It's been a few years. I've moved on. Uh, but, <laughs> was one of them Yeah, there are Diamond? a couple that didn't. What's that? Well, I'm just curious. Was one of them Dinky Diamond? Well, he had passed. Oh, oh had, Okay. Yeah, he had passed. But what we, but what I did was I talked to each of them. Harley was the first, and I, I and most of them were very open and had so many interesting things to say on a technical level, but also in terms of their experience. Uh, one of the fellows, John Mendelson, who jumped with them very early, right. was not that enthusiastic about his experience. That's totally fine. I did read that. Uh, but yeah. All, yeah, but all the rest were were pretty pretty positive about it. And uh, you mentioned Dinky Diamond. What I did was I talked to a number of the people who played with him. I talked to Muff Winwood, who was a producer at the time, and I put together kind of a memoriam. And I even talked to a couple fans, and that that was, I think, one of the ni- a nice piece. Um, but the real thrill was talking to these drummers themselves. And the first one I talked to, coincidentally, was Harley Feinstein. And Harley, uh, he had just done this very long podcast. And so he was like, well, I'm not sure if I have anything new to say, but he had plenty to say. He was so interesting. And, uh, yeah, he's just a, they're all, every one of them is just a terrific person in my, in my estimation. Um, so getting to your specific question, I mean, there's two questions. One, what is it about their drumming that fascinates me or that I think is so special? And then the second is Harley's contribution. And if you don't mind, I'll talk to the first one. I'll talk to the first one first, and then I can put Harley into that context. Would that be okay? Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll say this about every one of them. Uh, Every one of them was very positive about their experience. They loved being part of Sparks, except, you know, I mentioned John. But all the others were very positive about their experience. The second thing is they all had a high regard for Ron and Russell, very high regard. They thought the world of them and their creativity. And the third is that they had a high regard for each other. They knew of each other's work. They knew they had all the albums. They loved the band. And it was so much fun hearing them comment on some of the other ones and, and what the others had contributed. And they all had something. It was all very positive. And, and you know, none of them would say, you know, they were the best. They all said, oh, he was the greatest drummer. He, she was the greatest drummer. And it was just really fun to get all that positive talk about their experiences. And in terms of what it is, of the drumming that gets me so excited is this, or, or, find, or that I find so compelling is this. I'm a Charlie Watts style drummer, very much of a four on the floor, keep that beat, you know, keep the band moving. That's kind of a if you listen, too, isn't it? 
Lord, and I'm not a Beatles fan, but yeah, it is. I like to say Charlie, um, but but um, yes, definitely Ringo. Ringo gets his credit here too. But every one of them, you know, had brought something completely different to the music. And so, if you want to really think about what it was that made Sparks' drumming so great, you have to step back a little, and you have to think about Sparks themselves and. What makes them so special? Well, it's obviously it's Russell Mills singing, it's Ron's keyboarding, keyboard playing and arrangements, but that's the key. Mm-hmm. He writes such intricate arrangements for all his songs through the entire period, even in the 80s, when they were a little bit more straight, rock, straight ahead, rock and roll based. You still had a number of songs that had these very intricate arrangements. So these drummers were asked to do a lot more than just keep the beat as steady as possible, which to me is hard enough they were asked to be part of that arrangement no, I'm sorry. And Did, do, are, are you are you saying that they were tasked with more during their early 80s new wave period no no i'm saying even in yeah i'm saying even in the 80s new wave period there was still some amazing drumming that was taking place because even then there are still some ar- amazing arrangements that Ron Mayo is producing and they had to be able to not just keep the beat but contribute to the overall arrangement that Ron Mayo had put together. I guess and, I would, um, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Well, I, I would just uh, uh, kind of following along with, uh, that, with uh, what you were talking about. It, it seems like the the music that they made in in the early '80s, the, the when they what, sort of the the, the K rock era, I suppose, was a simpler <laughs> um, in terms of arrangements. Do you feel like I mean that's my take on it? Do you feel like that meant that the drummer at the time, and we've you know discussed him before briefly, uh, had to do had to work more to produce more arrangement? No, no. I, okay, so even in the 80s, you're right. The arrangements were simpler, a little bit more stripped down in a lot of places. But there was still some complexity to them. And the drummer was still asked to do more than just keep up with a one, two, three, four beat. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Gotcha. Okay. Now, and, and, and so, go ahead. So if we take it back to Harley, mm-hmm. what Harley was doing, and I know you want to focus on these first two albums. Sure. What Harley was doing was creating the template for that sound. No one, no one, there, there had been no sparks before that. Um, right. And he was asked to basically figure out what to do as Ron Mayo was writing these songs, even as a kid, even in those early, early stages that had all these different parts. They were a little bit uh, challenging. You know, the fact that they could do that, even at that stage of their career, is to me a monumental achievement. They were doing it. If you look at a song like Beaver or Lindy, there's so many different parts there. Um, and many of the others are like that, too. So Harley was still figuring it out. And Harley set the template for some of the other drummers that came to play. As they moved on to uh, the island years in London, and they had a, produce, a different producer, Muff Winwood, who kind of tightened them up a little bit and gave them a little bit more of a gloss that you hear on Kimono and Propaganda. Sure. Uh, by then, the drummer's role was was a little bit more clear. Um, Dinky Diamond was asked to you know really uh, fit into that arrangement in a very tight way, and you hear that on a song like "Thank God It's Not Christmas," right. for example. But Harley didn't Harley didn't have anything that came before him. I see. So. So it was amazing that he was figuring this out. And if you listen to some of these songs, you can hear him trying to keep up. Um, a song like "Nothing Is Sacred," for example, he you know, or "Do Re Mi," he's taking, he's doing so many different things in these songs where he's trying to keep up with the arrangements, keep up with the the beat at the same time because that's the essential role. And then on top of all that, he he was still trying to he was trying to figure out how to do the fills for all these songs and how to make them work. And if you listen to the later Sparks stuff, there's very few fills. There's very few times when the drummer just goes nuts. It almost never happens. It's all very much constrained within the arrangement and the parameters that Ron Mayo has let da- laid down. In the early stages, there was a little bit more flexibility in those songs. And you hear Harley really have the opportunity to show what he can do, while at the same time trying to keep up with uh, the ever-changing tempos 
and at the same time trying to keep up with some kind of arrangement that Ron Mayo had in mind that these guys were trying to convey. So to me, that was a pretty amazing achievement on his part. And I think that's what I found so amazing about the work that he did. The first episode that I re- that we recorded was um, all revolved around the unreleased Half Nelson demo. And of course, Harley was not on board yet. And... Um, there aren't a lot of drums on there. And in fact, it, it sort of seemed to me that Ron and Russell didn't really know much or care about uh, drums or or composing for drums or arranging for drums. So it must have been... I mean, when Harley came 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 on board, it must have been like he was invent, reinventing the wheel. I, I mean, is that more, more or less right? It didn't seem like they really planned much in the way of, uh, of drums for their compositions. Well, you know, I don't know what was motivating them or how they were thinking, but in terms of the product itself, I would agree with that completely. I mean, the drums were just there in the background supporting what they were trying to do. And they were, you know, they, they weren't really a demo. Um, they sometimes have taken exception with that. They, in their mind, that was a complete record. Sure. So in their mind, that's the way the song should have sounded. But obviously... Um, they really were demos. They, they well, they really were, you know, unfinished pieces of music in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But really fun to listen to, but yeah. but unfinished in a lot of ways. Um, but what Harley did was they advertised for a drummer. They brought him. They brought him in. And yes, he was asked to be part of this band. And uh, one of the things he said is that with Todd Rundgren, who produced the first album, mm-hmm. uh, Todd really didn't ask the band to change much. He said, "I want to take these guys." and let them just do their thing, because it is so wacky and so wild. So there was no one who was saying to, to talk to him, okay, maybe do this a little bit differently, do that a little bit differently, or at least that's my impression. It was kind of like, you guys just do your thing. Um, I think the production on the first album is not as strong, to be honest with you, as it is on the second album. Uh, some of the cymbals sound, to me, to my ear, very poorly recorded. Uh, I feel like maybe Todd Rundgren should have pushed him a little bit more, but nonetheless, that's what he did. Oh, but the on, second on the produced, first album, yeah, you think he should yeah. have pushed them more on the, on the percussion? Well, I think the, there should have been a little bit more care taken in some areas. Let's just put it that way. Uh, compared to what came before, I mean, I, they, they were literally on some tracks banging on cardboard boxes and pans, were, were they not? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and... You know, that's what I'm saying. Maybe he should have gotten him an actual drum set. I don't know. <laughs> but, but you know, I, I mean, I love the first album, so it's not a criticism. It's just sure. when I listen to that in the second one, which is produced by Thaddeus James Lowe, mm-hmm. who went on to have a lot of fame with the Electric Prunes, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, he really seemed, in my mind at least, to have a sense of what the band was all about and where they could go with this sound of theirs. And I feel like he took them to just a little bit, uh, like to another level a little bit. And so to me, that second album is a little darker, but it's, it's also a little bit more accomplished. And I guess that's also because the band was a little bit more experienced at that time. Um, but I thought my, my dream now is that someday they would get together with Thaddeus James Lowe, because it would be fascinating to hear what they would come up with. Well, what else but, did- I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you. Sorry. What what else did the Thaddeus James Lowe uh, produce that you're aware of? Because I I wasn't aware of any of his other pr- production work. He wasn't much uh, much. He didn't do a lot of producing, as far as I know. I'm not an expert in that, um, so I don't want to say I, I, I'm not sure what the answer is. But he was basically uh, he was he his main job wasn't the producer, but he did end up producing that album, and then I think he went on and did his thing with the Electric Prunes. Uh, but I, I'm not sure exactly what the answer is to your question there. That's but uh, to me, he's really terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and you know, I, I haven't just full on full honesty here. I haven't been a massive fan of the band for more than say a dozen or so years, and so the, those those first two Bearsville albums, I had to get reacquainted with um, when starting on this project, and there were you know a couple of records that I kind of kind of passed by and didn't make much of um, much of an impact on me the first couple of times I've heard them and of course you know doing this project they've started to have more uh, more of an impact on me um, it, so I, I noticed when I was listening to the unreleased 
so-called demo, there were two tracks that were on that song, and they were Russell penned, I believe, that made it to the first Bearsville uh, record. And I kept listening to see if there were enough differences to make <clears> me appreciate it. Between the and I'm talking about there was um, Roger, Roger, and there was Sacrin and the War. Right. Correct? All right. And I kept listening to see if there was anything different, like really noticeably different different in the production and the drumming specifically, you know, as per our conversation. I couldn't really hear anything that was that different. And I'm not sure if that was because of Todd Rungren's sort of hands-off production or, you know, I, or, you know or if maybe that Harley Feinstein, you know, just didn't, feel like he wanted to touch much of what was done on those tracks before. I don't think that's a question. Yeah. No, it's a very interesting observation. I'll take another listen to him. Uh, it might be that he, he felt that that was on track and it was as simple as that. Um, you know, but it's interesting that they didn't use a lot of those songs that were on the demo yeah. on the first album. That's they, true. They I used a couple of two, Yeah, they used exactly two, and they were both Russell penned songs, which I thought was really interesting. So as far as uh, Harley Feinstein, it sounds like he kind of developed the template for being the rhythm section, or at least the drum section of the band. Uh, did he offer you any insights as to how he came about this process, How what he felt his role should be? Uh we didn't talk about that so much, but we did talk about what, what he said, and I'd have to look it over again, but what he said is that it was a time where they had a little bit more freedom. And you also had the uh, the Mankey brothers. Right, who were part of, right? Yeah, so, okay, what he said, what he said that I found was interesting. Okay, let's, I, I'm assuming you're going to do some editing on this, right? I will. Okay, so okay. let me start over. What he said is that it was more of a democracy at that time because you had the two Mankey brothers who were extremely talented uh, songwriters and performers in their own right who went on to have success in their own right. And then you had Ron and Russell and then you had him joining that mix. So he was kind of willing to go along and just be part of this this band. It was a more democratic band at the time. So he was he was willing to just be part of that democracy. Um, by Ron and Russell's own words, that was the last time they were truly a democracy. They've said that. Mm. So I think what he did was he was just trying to make sure that everything stayed on track while also keeping up with these intricate arrangements and at the same time trying to find places for creativity uh, where he could. And you hear that in some great work, some great triplets works that he does, some fills that he does. And in the song Beaver Lindy, he has the all-time greatest single-stroke role probably ever recorded to record, in my humble opinion. The all-time greatest single-stroke role. Yeah. That role he does that breaks up the song right in the middle, oh, man, that is so powerful. When we get to Beaver O'Lindy in the next couple of episodes, I will definitely focus on that. That sounds great. <laughs> and I think uh, the, there's the continuity is that all the things that they did in those records were later on uh, refined as the process went on or changed as Ron and Russell saw fit to change them. But they always had very distinct roles for the drummer. And that to me was always a very interesting thing. Well, and that's one, that's another thing I kind of wanted to ask you about um, insofar as your project as a whole, because to be a drummer for Sparks means that there's, some kind of expiration date on your usefulness, it would seem. <laughs> Did anyone speak much to that? Um, I, I know that uh, Hilly Michaels, for example, was a little disappointed that their association ended after one record. We talked about that. That was oh, the Big Beat was drummer. Big Beat. Oh, Big uh, Beat, okay. He was a little disappointed. He felt that they should have could have stayed on in that configuration. And I agree with that. My feeling is that if there had been a second record in the big beat mode, it probably would have been even better, um, maybe more accepted by fans. I happen to like big beat, but I know a lot of people don't care for it. I would like to have... Yeah. Good. No, I, I, I do appreciate the, the thunderous sound of the drums, and that was something yeah. that they hadn't really explored at that time. I, I do appreciate that, and it would have been nice to hear more of that. 
it would have been really interesting to see what had happened if that configuration had come up with a second album. Um, Dinky, uh, Dinky, I know that he had said in interviews, not to me, but you know, as I mentioned, he passed. But he had he had said that they understood when Ron and Russell said that they were going to go a different direction because they felt that they had become sidemen to some degree by that point. Sure. And so I think it wasn't a shock for him. I think Harley and those guys from the original uh, L.A. band were a little surprised when Ron and Russell went to L.A. and basically, went, I'm sorry, went to England, England yeah. and said, okay, we're starting fresh. I think they were actually a little surprised, but Harley seemed to understand that this is what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, David Kendrick, who was the drummer from the 80s stuff, right. I think he was a little disappointed. I, I think he felt that was that they were making some great music, but at the same time, I think he also felt that they were relying more and more on electronics as the 80s albums went on, and he could kind of see the writing on the wall as well. So, you know, different reactions, but um, you're right. There's a short expiration date. Uh, you know, they they uh, they do their thing, and they are sparks. Ron, and, it, it didn't start out that way, but the way it evolved is that they are sparks. Ron and Russell Hill, and I think people who play with them kind of understand that at this point. Do you have any uh, favorite tracks, either related to the the drumming or just in general on the, let's say, just the first Bearsville album? Well, since you asked, uh, <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> Let me tell you, I have done something for you and your listeners. Oh, I have yeah. put together a uh, Sparks Drumming, a curated collection, which is a uh, playlist on Spotify. And I'm going to, I'll give it to you. I won't, I won't put it out or anything or until I give it to you so you can put it in the show notes. Sure. And I put together the songs that I felt have some really great drumming in them that people who listen to this conversation, they may want to follow up on or listen to at least. And the goal of this was, I called it a curated collection because that's what you cool, hip people say these days. And I wanted to show that even though I'm an old man, I still am kind of cool and hip. Okay? Okay, um, I get you. Yeah. And, I just turned 40. I'm not that young myself. but yeah. Oh, I barely remember 40, my friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let me tell you um, the songs that I chose from the first two albums and why. And I'll do this very quickly because there's, there's a lot. There's a few. Uh, I chose Fletcher Hanorama because that's so different from some of the others. It has that kind of soft, almost jazz beat. Yeah. And I thought that was that's very beautiful playing. I chose no, no More Mr. Nice Guys because this is where they really rocked out and you can really hear Harley having fun with this and going to town. Mm-hmm. I picked Big Bands because this is from the first album because on that album... Um, that's where you see a number of interesting arrangements, and you, you see Harley really moving along with it and helping to drive the music. Oh, God, I and love that be, one. They're, they're, yeah. I'm sorry, I hate, I hate to interrupt. No, yeah, but no, 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 it's great. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there are so there's so many there's so many changes and there's so many key changes. There are so many changes in the beats and the rhythm, and uh, and you're right, he does a great job either keeping up or even propelling it where it's going. It's a great one. Yeah, and uh, those those are just some of my, you know, Big Bands is one of my all-time favorite Sparks tracks. And one of the things I hear, I did here was I didn't put just, I didn't just put all my favorite Sparks tracks. I mean, there's some songs on those albums that I, I, I think are just so phenomenal, but I tried to really keep it to where the drumming had made an interesting contribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the second album, I chose Beaver Lindy. And I think the, I think Harley's just brilliant on that. Nothing is sacred because I think that's a great example of him just trying like hell to keep up with what was going on in the music, and he pulls it off. He pulls it off. Um, and then I picked Do Re Mi because that's another fun drum song where he has a chance to show off his chops a little bit. Sure. So those are the ones that I picked from those two albums. Great picks. I, uh, I, yeah, those are those are wonderful. All of them, and of course. Uh, I will be uh, uh, editing this uh, later on, and I'm sure I'll be inserting some audio clips of uh, of all of those songs that that we mentioned because those are all favorites of mine as well. So great, great. After um, after Harley, you know, went I suppose was out of a out of a job briefly when when the, when Ron and Russell went on and, and moved across the Atlantic. Uh, do you know much about his career after that? Uh, he's a very successful lawyer in the L.A. area. 
No kidding. To this day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, maybe he's retiring now. We're all a little bit older, but um, as of a few years ago, yeah, he was he was doing great. That's fantastic. Did he make any other recordings? Did he work on on anything else music related after his time with Sparks? I think he did. I think he worked with James Thaddeus Lowe once or twice again. He may have done a few other things here and there, but I think he moved on from rock and roll. But interestingly, he still plays in two bands, and he still plays regularly at clubs. He he loves playing. Oh man, that's fantastic. Yeah, it is. Uh, so I mean, you're a musician yourself. You're you're a drummer, I assume. Monty? Yeah. Yeah. Great. I, now, are, are you playing live? You're in the Philadelphia area? No, Pittsburgh. No, Pittsburgh. Well, no, I'm from Pittsburgh. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. Oh, um, my mother-in-law is sort of near there. That's interesting. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I have some people that I play with. We average zero to one gig a year. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but I, maybe we're going to ramp it up a little bit. Um, I think we're going to try to ramp it up a little bit. But we have a lot... <clears throat> We have a lot of fun. It's a real effort to get them to play Spark songs, but every now and then I'm able to get it in. Yeah, I can empathize with that. Yeah, I've got some friends that I jam with, and sometimes I you know, tell them, let's do I predict, and they don't want to do that. Uh, right. So, uh, well, here's, here's the trick. Uh-huh. I, I find covers. I find, here's the trick. I find covers of their songs. Like I got the Nico Case version of uh, Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth. Nico Case it, did yeah. Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth. Yeah, it's great. And I played that for them. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's play that. So I got my sparks in, but they didn't even know it. Uh, now they'll know. There you go. Okay, yeah, you've just got to slip it in. Spoon slip it in. Uh, oh, <laughs> so do, what's the name of the of your uh, of your outfit there, your band? Oh, we call ourselves... We call ourselves Like Water because Like Water, uh, we go in many different directions. But we, we, it's really just something we do for fun. Right. Words to live by, like water. I love that. Like water. Uh, well, Monty, I really appreciate your time, and uh, don't be surprised if I do lean on you again uh, when I want to uh, get your insights on uh, some more about Sparks and particularly their, the, the drummers that were involved in their story. Um, but again, thank you. thank you so much for your time. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention? Is there anything coming up? Oh, oh your podcast, of course. Uh, yes, my podcast is called So Important. I'll send you a link to it, and I talk to just all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. And we talk to different bands. We talk to people in social media and social services, and it's a it's a lot of fun. It's something I do that's a lot of fun. Very good. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah, and I get to talk to... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> And I get to talk to people that I find really interesting, so I'm really enjoying it. And I might take that in a couple of new directions. I'm a big fan of American music and how it all came together to form rock and roll. And I might start to really explore some of the wonderful strands of American music. I'm sorry. Uh, you're like uh, exploring the roots of rock and roll music. Is that? Yeah, I love I love that. And you know, some of the early drummers who were doing things again, like Harley, they didn't have a template. And exactly. You know, and they were creating this new music, and it's just very fascinating to me. But anyway, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And let me just say thank you to you, and I am here at your disposal anytime. We, You know, we, we really don't get into the later drummers. I'm assuming that if you ever talk about them, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. We'll talk about David Kendrick. We'll talk about Tammy Glover. We, we will get there in time, I'm quite sure. And I, I really do thank you for, for being there at my disposal. Uh, Monty, um, thanks again. The name of your podcast is so important. I'll post up a link, and you have a great rest of your day, Monty. I'll be talking with you very soon. Well, thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you, Christian. <laughs>